You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The number one way that consumers protect their privacy today is by deleting cookies, which really doesn't do the trick, and it actually breaks things when you try to log back into a site. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. This is episode 42 for August 19th, 2020. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I've got a new project from the EFF that hunts stingrays. Ben describes a lawsuit accusing Zoom of misrepresenting their encryption. And later in the show, my conversation with Randy Price and Chris Pedigo from Digital Content Next. They're a trade association for digital publishers. We're going to be discussing the challenges of aligning the data that websites and apps collect with what consumers expect. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, why don't you uh, start things off for us this week? What do you have for us? Sure. So my article is from the Washington Post cybersecurity blog, 202. Mm. Uh, Zoom sued by Consumer Protection Group for misrepresenting its encryption protections. <laughs> so uh, our favorite pandemic-based application is in a little bit of uh, legal trouble. They're yeah. not in financial trouble. Uh, hopefully, smart investors out there got in on the ground in January, but they are in some legal trouble now. Well, they can afford to hire good lawyers, right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Uh, their stock has, has certainly risen over the past several months. Uh, and I think they're going to need some good lawyers. Uh, this hmm. is a lawsuit that was brought in the Superior Court in the District of Columbia, so the equivalent of what a state court would be. And it is a claim under the District of Columbia's Consumer Protection Act, basically saying that Zoom was engaging in fraudulent trade practices, business hmm. practices. The allegation is that Zoom was misrepresenting its encryption capabilities. They had long branded themselves as having end-to-end encryption. Um, right. They put it on a bunch of their reports, publications. It was advertised on their website. You know, it was a feature of their service that that they publicized. Turns out, as probably many of our listeners know, that they did not have end-to-end encryption. That was just a, a misrepresentation. They used a lesser form of encryption. They used TLS, which meant that Zoom itself could potentially have access to a Zoom conversation. And because, you know, the end-to-end encryption wasn't in place, it left conversations vulnerable to bad actors, hackers, potentially. So the allegation here is that Zoom misrepresented their end-to-end encryption capabilities. And 
because consumers in the District of Columbia, where this lawsuit has been initiated, were falsely relying on that end-to-end encryption guarantee, Zoom was basically defrauding its consumers. So a couple of noteworthy things about this lawsuit. First, D.C. is one of the few jurisdictions in the country that allows third-party groups to bring lawsuits on behalf of consumers. So usually this would be brought either by the consumers themselves in a class action lawsuit or by the attorney general within a jurisdiction. D.C. actually allows nonprofit organizations to represent consumers in a consumer protection lawsuits. So that's what's happening here. So that's sort of one interesting element of this. The other is, I think we've known for some time, probably since around April, and that's when everybody kind of got into this, this world of Zooming, when Zooming became a, a verb that was part of our regular vernacular. <laughs> I think we've known that they misrepresented themselves uh, as providing end-to-end encryption. In fact, right. they admitted it. They admitted the mistake. They sought to rectify that first by guaranteeing end-to-end encryption on their paid service, which did not go over well. So now they claim to be guaranteeing end-to-end encryption on their free service as well. But it sort of took lawyers a while to get all of their ducks in a row to come up with a plausible cause of action. And just based on reading the civil complaint here, it seems like the attorneys from this consumer watchdog group in D.C. have done their homework. And this is a a pretty compelling lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because is this just a case of uh, perhaps the folks in the marketing and PR department being a little overzealous and, I don't know, overselling what, what they thought was going on? Maybe they had a miscommunication with the engineers. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple possibilities here. One is that, as you say, maybe the technologists were not in charge of the marketing and end-to-end encryption is something that the marketing team knows that consumers want, but they Mm -hmm. didn't have an understanding of exactly what that is. What the civil complaint alleges, and I think this is very compelling, is that End-to-end encryption has a very specific meaning. It is defined in federal standards. So if you advertise that, you know, knowledgeable consumers will know exactly what that means, and they will justifiably rely on that characterization. So, you know, I think what Zoom's original excuse was, was, well, technically it's not what the industry would refer to as end-to-end encryption. <laughs> we, were, yeah, we were using that as, as a term of art to mean that, you know, uh-huh. transmission of, of our conversations was very secure. Right. I can't help thinking about mobile providers and unlimited data. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> unlimited data. And then the last 15 seconds of the commercial is unlimited doesn't actually mean unlimited. Right. There are a million different exceptions. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very possible here. One thing that I think does not bode well for Zoom, they would probably prefer to plead ignorance here and say, this was a mistake on, on the part of our marketing team. Uh, we made a mischaracterization. It was not intentional. We weren't trying to defraud uh, the consumers of our product. At reading through the complaints, it seems like Zoom should have been aware that this was a misrepresentation. They were informed hmm. by privacy advocates and cybersecurity professionals saying, you advertise yourself as providing end-to-end encryption and you do not provide that. And there's a lot of written documentation that Zoom and its parent company, headquartered in California, were provided that information. So it's going to be difficult for them to plead ignorance. If I had to guess, I think it's possible that Zoom would try to settle this case. If the lawsuit went through and the consumer protection advocacy group was successful, 
it would be about $1,500 in damages to every DC resident who made a non-business Zoom call in the relevant time period. And so that's, you know, that's certainly going to add up. So it seems pretty clear here that they did make a misrepresentation. They did make a mistake. Perhaps it it would make sense for their bottom line to try and settle the suit before they get sued in in other courts across the country. In a case like this where you have a product that is mostly free, you know, I, I would suspect that most of the people who are using Zoom are not paid customers. How do you come up with a number, a dollar number for what people have uh, suffered if they're not paying for the product? So oftentimes it's not a scientific calculation on the damages suffered. It's either based on some sort of custom in legal precedence, like this is the general level of damages that we assign based on fraudulent practices related to cybersecurity. So it's usually Hmm. not as specific as it is for other types of damages. It also depends on the severity of the allegations. So what's happening in this case is the civil complaint is saying that the plaintiffs deserve what are called treble damages, which is basically triple the amount that would normally be given for a standard, we didn't really know what we were doing, fraud case. Hmm. And what that seems to indicate is that Zoom was aware or should have been aware that they were fraudulently representing their product so that they should be, basically they should be punished above and beyond what compensatory damages would otherwise indicate, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And of course, you know, (laughs) maybe the lawyers have a boat payment coming up, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Those yachts won't buy themselves, my friends. Oh, I, I hate to be cynical, but it's just so easy you to... Can always, to <laughs> you can always be cynical to lawyers. I will say Zoom obviously has the capability to hire the best lawyers in the business, considering right. how well they've done as opposed to the rest of us in this country during the pandemic. <laughs> right. But I also think that the consumer advocacy group in Washington, D.C. is going to have very good legal representation as well. Because this is a relatively stringent consumer protection law in the District of Columbia, There's a long history of D.C. cases related to fraudulent trade practices. Hmm. Um, So there are a lot of experienced attorneys there. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this case proceeds going forward. It was just filed yesterday. um, So I think it should be some time before we actually have any resolution here. All right. Well, yeah, interesting indeed. Uh, One to keep an eye on. My story this week is from uh, Zach Whitaker over at TechCrunch, and uh, he writes, A new technique can detect newer 4G Stingray cell phone snooping. Now, Ben, listeners of this show know that you and I love our Stingrays. Love our Stingrays. <laughs> we we just can't get enough of them. We've metaphorically <laughs> been stung by the Stingrays. That's right. And so just a, a quick review. A Stingray is a cell tower simulator, and what it does is it allows uh, law enforcement to basically activate this device. It pretends to be a cell phone tower and then anyone who has a cell phone in the area where the Stingray is, their cell phone is going to attempt to log on to this device, which is just part of how cell phones work. And uh, based on that information, they can get a lot of information about the cell phones that are in the area, the the locations and whose cell phone it might be. There's information that's exchanged in part of the, the handshaking routine that cell phones normally have between themselves and towers. But these Stingrays have been very secretive. The folks who make the Stingrays, uh, Harris Corporation, they have these things uh, all wrapped up under non-disclosure agreements. 
So they're sort of cloaked in mystery. More and more information has come out about them. Uh, actually, we've had some some kind listeners write in who are former law enforcement who have given us some insights onto how they work. So I appreciate everyone who's written in to try to uh, to help us understand more how, how they work. But what this story is about is how some folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation have come up with an open source project that they're calling the Crocodile Hunter, and it can detect cell site simulators. So if you're running this software, and, and you need some hardware and some software, it, it's not something that's easy to do. You you do need to, to have some stuff to be able to do this. But if you're set to do this, you can run this open source software, and you can detect stingrays, and they have done that. They've gone into some areas, uh, and they've detected some stingrays. Now, before we go on, yeah, let's discuss this name, Crocodile Hunter, Ben. <laughs> So, yeah, we have to talk about this name. Um, I was a big fan of the Crocodile Hunter. It's been 14 years now. So, you know, maybe a little bit too soon to be confronting this tragedy. But, um, yeah. The backstory is Steve Irwin was killed by a stingray. He was, he was doing the things that he does. He was in in, in, uh, all sorts of adventures with wild animals. Yeah. Dangerously confronting wild animals in their own habitats. Right. Yeah. And he died because a stingray's uh, barb uh, hit him in the heart, and and he died from that. So, so this, why would you? Uh, yeah, I, I just it strike oh, it strikes me as being a little tasteless, maybe slightly <laughs> tasteless, but also I don't get it. Why would you name the software that is trying to detect and ultimately defeat stingray technology? after a person who was defeated by those very stingrays. Oh. Uh, it just seems like, wouldn't you want, like, if you were the stingray trying to uh, defeat the crocodile, then maybe you'd name the uh, your enemy the crocodile <laughs> hunter, if that makes right, sense. Right, right, It just seems like this is the reverse of, of what uh, should be named here. Yeah, well, nobody asked us. <laughs> nobody asked us. It's a clever name. I just don't know that it really works, and it's certainly yeah. the first thing that, that caught my eye about this. We yeah. love our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah. But I feel like they're kind of setting themselves up for failure here. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, just having affection for Steve Irwin and how, how much entertainment he provided. It just, uh, I don't know. It just feels a little funny, a little icky. <laughs> I, I'm still not over it, Dave. He was so good. He was, he was. so good. He was. But, uh, and I apologize to our listeners for that digression there. Uh <laughs> It is a a very interesting open source technology, open source software. As you said, it's not like a lay person could get their hands on this and detect stingrays. You'd have to have some level of sophistication. You'd have to have uh, a certain type of hardware and software to actually make this work. So it's not something that's widely available. But I think it could shed light on the prevalence of stingray devices, particularly mm-hmm. within given geographical areas. As yeah. you've said, stingray policies are extremely secretive. Uh, they're protected by these non-disclosure agreements. Law enforcement obviously does not want to divulge their investigatory methods, so they're very cagey about whether they use stingray technology. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to litigate these cases. There have been some successful lawsuits against the use of stingray technology, including one uh, in the state of Maryland, but it's very difficult to litigate just because information is, is so scarce. So what you could get from something like this is perhaps some sort of dashboard that shows the prevalence of Stingray devices in a particular area. Even if, you know, not many of us could actually have this crocodile hunter on our own personal devices, we might have information on 
how often it's being used, which police departments uh, across the country are, are using it most prevalently, whether there are any sort of biases in the use of these stingrays, whether they're in neighborhoods that are uh, full of minorities, et cetera, people who have faced mm-hmm. historical discrimination. So I think that could be particularly illuminating yeah. and why I think this is a, a worthy project from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah, maybe lift that veil of secrecy that uh, Stingrays have enjoyed so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of what the Electronic Frontier Foundation does in general, is to sort of unmask surveillance techniques that fly under the radar. And because surveillance is so secretive, you know, as opposed to other law enforcement tactics, the technology moves so quickly that it just takes a while for the activist community to realize exactly what new gizmos law enforcement is using on a daily basis. So to just get access to that information, I think, could be particularly valuable uh, to the general public. And, you know, I think the way to get this into the public consciousness is to make use of this, develop some sort of report that says, look at the prevalence of this technology. Um, Look how frequently it's being used in these particular neighborhoods. Is this a technology you want to entrust to your local law enforcement division, you know, especially given newfound skepticism towards certain law enforcement officials in this country. Uh, So I think that that could definitely be valuable. I still scratch my head and and wonder how the FCC ever allowed these things to operate. Just the whole notion of (laughs) everything that they do just seems to run counter to what you want to do when you're trying to run a a communications network uh, in a nation. But uh, I guess... uh, I don't know. I, that's why I'm not on the board of the FCC, right? Well, we should get you on the board of the FCC, first of all. <laughs> Let's start uh, a campaign. Yeah, that, yeah, that would go well. Dave for FCC. <laughs> right. I'm just the guy they want. <laughs> Agencies are very deferential to law enforcement, especially when you get high-profile cases that say, you know, we were after a serial rapist or serial murderer, and the only way yeah. we were able to catch them was tricking their cell phone into revealing, you know, I identifying information. So it's just, it's hard to go against the wishes of law enforcement. That's kind of why these surveillance technologies subsist. Um, It's hard to argue against it when you have these high profile cases where you catch the bad guys. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll have a link to the story. Again, that's uh, Zach Whitaker over on uh, TechCrunch. Uh, Interesting stuff for sure. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, we have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Randy Price and Chris Pedigo. Uh, they are from a trade association called the Digital Content Next, uh, and they uh, work with digital publishers. And uh, certainly top of mind for them are some of these challenges of trying to align the data that websites and apps collect with what consumers expect and more and more demand. Here's my conversation with Randy Price and Chris Pedigo. The line of questioning here is really to understand consumers' expectations and how well the industry is aligning with consumer expectations. And from where we sit, Digital Content Next is the trade organization for premium publishers. And these publishers have a, you know, a direct relationship, a one-to-one relationship with consumers. But again, we wanted to check in as a whole of the industry with consumers and their expectations with what data is collected and what their expectations are with that data collection. We've done similar studies with about Facebook and Google um, and consumers' understanding of exactly what they're collecting and how they're using it. And so we thought this was a good opportunity for us to check in once again. And what we found here was that the majority of consumers understand that data is being collected overall and their expectations about the primary website. So I go on a website and that website is collecting data to help improve overall, to you know protect me from fraud and malice. Those are top expectations that are aligned with consumers. So consumers do expect, 59%, they do expect websites to collect data to help protect them against fraud and malicious activity, 55% to help improve the website and navigation overall. And also, you know, high expectation in terms of collecting data for subscription. So I've logged in, I've signed on. There's a, you know, high correlation that once I'm a subscriber, they will be collecting data and doing this kind of for my benefit. Where we see expectations don't align is once that data goes out of house. So once we have outside vendors using that data to either retarget for advertising or use that data to or sell that data, that's where consumer expectations completely fall off. That's what consumers don't expect and I'd say are not informed about the transparency of when that data is being sold and used outside of that first party relationship. Can you describe to me sort of what the ecosystem is like out there in terms of the folks who are providing these ads that, that are a big part of the economic engine of the internet? I mean, are, are there different levels of the, the, the folks who are using best practices and uh, you know, following the rules and, and doing the right thing? And then does it you know, branch off from there as, as some folks, um, different layers, uh, aren't respectful of, of people's wishes? The sort of digital ad ecosystem is really quite vast. There are obviously two big players in that ecosystem, Facebook and Google, um, really mm. sort of dominate the ad landscape. But there's a myriad of companies that perform a lot of different roles from providing simple analytics, making sure the ad is served, measuring the ad. To Randy's point about consumer expectations, I think most consumers understand that advertising is a key funder of the web. What they don't expect is for companies like Google and Facebook to be collecting data about them as they go around the web. But And that's where the CCPA comes in, is it, it really tries to give consumers control over the sale of their data. And the way they define sale is data that is flowing from the first party, from the website to a, a third party for sort of independent use. 
if you look at the digital ad ecosystem, you've got lots of companies that aren't necessarily taking that data to build a profile. There's not a sale of that data. So that you know, sort of analytics company or measurement company is, is collecting data in line with what a consumer would expect. You know, they're, pro- they're providing a service in the app or on the website, but they're not taking that data and reusing it elsewhere. Where I think CCPA is helpful in giving consumers more control is that it is giving consumers control over how companies like Google and Facebook might take that data, build a profile about them, and use it to serve advertising elsewhere on the web. And what specifically is included in CCPA that helps us here? So there's a number of rights that you get under CCPA if you're a California resident. One is the sort of general right to know what data has been collected about you. You can request to have your data deleted. But I think the big one is you can exercise your right to not have your data sold. So it's called the do not sell right. And in that scenario, you click a button on the on the publisher's site, or there may be in the future some sort of extension in the browser or some sort of browser control to, to let uh, websites know your preference. But once you've clicked, once you've activated that do not sell right, your data can be used for a number of purposes for fraud, for recommendations while you're on the site, for anything that the first party sort of uses to, to make that service better for you, that can still happen. But it's data flowing to companies like Google and Facebook that cannot happen anymore. So in terms of, of the, the consumers out there, I think like a lot of folks out there at the outset when online advertising began and there was this opportunity to customize ads based on your interests – I think like a lot of people, I thought, well, that's a that's a good idea. I'm on board with that. I would rather see ads for things that I'm interested in rather than ads that have nothing to do with anything I'm interested in. Um, but it seems as though we've kind of overshot that. That <laughs> A lot of the places we visit, you find that the ads start following you around and it's a little bit creepy. Are there best practices out there for organizations to walk that fine line between collecting appropriate data and not making the users uncomfortable? Well, I think that's where we really look to, you know, aligning with expectations. And with that comes transparency. So, you know, I think one of the questions and concerns consumers had when ads were following them around was, how are they doing that? So they weren't informed on kind of what was going on on the back end and what data was being collected and what data was being used and sold and used for targeting. So, you know, one of the things we... Um, we discuss um, is that idea of transparency and informing consumers about what is actually happening on the back end, you know, of course, in consumer language. Now, you know, when we looked at the things that consumers were doing, for those that were aware that they could opt out, I mean, when we did this study, only half of the consumers even knew they had an option to opt out of data. So again, that's something that needs to be discussed and needs to be talked about uh, in layman terms with consumers that there is this option. You know, as Chris said, there's an option in CCPA to do not sell my data. So those options need to be really clear for consumers. And when we talk to consumers in in this study about what they're doing, for those that are are aware of opting out, when we talk to them about what action steps they were using, most of those weren't really helping them in protecting their data. The idea of deleting their cookies, that also doesn't, you know, protect them against, you know, online tracking. And doing do not track, I mean, it's known out there that 
many ignore those do not track signals. So their data is still being collected. Um, so a lot of the action steps that they currently are taking also aren't helping. So when consumers take these steps and then they still see those ads kind of following around, it is a little disconcerting to them as to why this is all happening. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that perhaps there's a trust gap here where even the advertisers who are doing their best to to do the right thing get lumped in with the folks who are out there just you know, vacuuming up data and, and selling it to the to the highest bidder. I wonder if there's a... I don't know, a PR campaign that needs to be put out there or even, you know, some sort of seal of approval or something that uh, if you're on a site where folks agree to do the right thing, that they they could say that they're doing so. Yeah, that's a really good point about trust. I think we've been sort of following this for years now. The unbridled collection of data really does creep out consumers, right? It's not just that you're seeing ads pop up all over the place, but there's a, you know, a lot of consumers that are wondering if it impacts the kinds of offers they're getting, credit card offers, or you know whether it impacts their credit score, all that kind of thing. And what's interesting is consumers really don't have a lot of ways to meaningfully sort of impact that data collection to opt out. And so what we've seen them do, like Randy referred to, the number one way that consumers protect their privacy today is by deleting cookies, which really doesn't do the trick. And it actually breaks things when you try to log back into a site, your, your right. login cookie's gone. But we have this, what's interesting is that a lot of consumers have started downloading ad blocking software, right? So they're mm. just blocking ads all together. They're sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In the U.S., I think it's around, Randy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's around 20 to 25% of consumers have downloaded ad blocking software. In Europe, it's closer to 50%. And in Asia, it's 60 to 70%, you know, depending on countries. So, you know, and this is primarily, the consumers downloading these ad blocking software are primarily younger consumers. So future customers, essentially, uh, the next generation. That trust gap is starting to have meaningful consequences for not just the bad actors, but for good actors, people that are using data in responsible ways. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I I am one of those folks who has an ad blocker. And so quite often I'll go to a website and a window will pop up and it says, hey, we see you're using an ad blocker. You know, please disable it so we can provide this content. And I guess the disconnect there for me is that I'm actually okay looking at the ads. I, I would love to have an option where they could show me the ad turn off the tracking, yep. right? But we don't have that fine control. It's We have a hammer, you know, it's either yep. on or off. Right. And, I, and I find that to be kind of frustrating because I would like to support these sites by viewing the ads. Yep. But again, that's where CCPA comes in is if you activate your do not sell right, publisher can still show you ads. It's just mm. data about you can't flow to third parties for, you know, building profiles and all that stuff that would creep you out. Is the value of the data that they're selling when they collect it and, and then sell it to third parties, I mean, is, does it have so much value that it's, it's hard to resist, that, that that extra little bit of income is alluring? I think about it more in the sense that a single publisher doesn't really have leverage in the marketplace to say to all the third parties out there, particularly the big ones like Google and Facebook, that we're not going to share this data with about the consumer. Really, the, the ad marketplace today is so heavily dependent upon data that they're, you know, if, if a single publisher were to pull back and say, no, we're not going to make that data available, their ads just wouldn't sell. Or they certainly wouldn't sell at, at the rate they are today. And it's no secret that, you know, the media business isn't swimming with cash right now. So 
Right. A, a single publisher really has no leverage with, with a company like Google or Facebook. And, and you see that time and time again. So uh, in some ways, the CCPA could be helpful in sort of resetting the marketplace and driving up the value of you know, simple contextual advertising. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? So if you can imagine a state of equilibrium between you know, the advertisers and the consumers, where do we end up in an ideal situation? Well, I think you know, Randy's piece here is really important, talking about consumer expectations. And I think, because I think even brands, advertising brands, want to be in, in line with what consumers expect. They want to be making consumers happy, right? Happy consumers are more likely to buy their products. In terms of the equilibrium, I think what you're seeing is a lot of countries and now states like California are passing privacy laws to give consumers control over how their data is sold, how it's shared. Uh, Europe, you know, a couple of years ago passed the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, is, and it's still sort of in its early days in terms of being enforced, but it does give consumers, it tries to sort of walk back the mass data sharing and, and give consumers control. Uh, CCPA is similar in that along those lines. It's trying to give consumers control that see where they can manage how their data is flowing around the web. What's interesting with CCPA is that you're it really is supposed to only apply to California residents, but you've got a number of companies that are applying it nationwide. Now the the coronavirus has impacted the agenda and timing of a lot of state legislatures around the country, but I expect as they continue to meet that more and more states will pass laws similar to CCPA. And so essentially, we don't have a federal standard here in the U.S. for consumer privacy, but it does feel like the CCPA will become the de facto standard. And so that consumer control over their data, I, th- I think, will, be- will become the new sort of normal for advertisers. All right, Ben, what do you think? It was really interesting. You know, I think maybe I would have guessed this, but consumers do have a superficial understanding of where and how their data gets collected on the internet and on various Hmm. websites. It's sort of the level you would expect your mom and dad to have. (laughs) If you go to a website and you give them your email address, you know, I think we all would have an expectation that they're collecting that information and using it. But what I think most of us do not intuit is that it's being used by third-party providers and to the extent to which that's happening. So there Mm -hmm. is this mismatch in consumer expectations and what's actually happening with consumer data as it traverses these third-party data collection companies. And, you know, I think that puts the onus, as uh, your interviewee said, on policymakers. Um, What the CCPA has tried to do is try and line up consumer expectations with what's actually happening. And the first step is, is just giving consumers two things, the opportunity to opt out and the opportunity to have notice of, of where their data is going. So I do think this is a, a policy problem. But the study is very worthwhile. I think it confirms what I would have suspected, um, but it's just interesting to see it backed up by data. Yeah, I have to admit that this is a, a bit of a bugaboo for me that, um, you know, I, I'm sure this happens to you too. You know, you'll go to a website or something, you want to check something out. Let's say it's a news website and, and something pops up and it says, hey, we see you're using an ad blocker, right? If you want to see this content, please uh, disable your ad blocker, whitelist us so we can yep. show you this because this is how we make our money. And And my response to that, and I wish there was a way I could respond in the moment to that is, okay, look, fine. 
It's not the ad I have a problem with. Right. Right. It's the 50 trackers that you have installed. That's what I have a problem with. So let's make a deal here. You show me the ad, but turn off the trackers. If you do that, I'm fine looking at the ad. I'll see your stupid ads. Absolutely. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. But that's not an option. And, And it bugs me that they pretend like that's the issue. That, right. Oh, you're blocking ads. No, I, I'm blocking all the tracking. That's the part I have a problem with. You want to put an ad on your website? More power to you. Right. We know you have to pay the bills. That's fine. Uh, we know right. that you have to have advertising. Otherwise, I'd be giving you my credit card because I'd still want to read your article. But yeah, that's right. We're, we're not reliably informed about the fact that we are being tracked as consumers. And that's really, you know, sort of the bread and butter of consumer privacy uh, legislation is just if these companies are not going to reveal that in their standard whitelisting page uh, on a website, then it's incumbent upon policymakers. And California has done this. The European Union uh, Union has done this to a certain degree to require companies to make that disclosure to us in order to do business within those jurisdictions. And as we've seen, once companies have to adapt these disclosure policies for California, that's going to be the nationwide standard because they don't want to change what their whitelisting notice says so that it's different in all 50 states across the country. So, yeah, yeah, I thought it was a a really interesting interview and and sort of a... um, eye-opening view of the mismatch between what actually happens in terms of our data getting collected and consumer expectations. Yeah. Well, our thanks to Randy Price and Chris Pedigo from Digital Content Next for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.